Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Then again, attorney Kevin Rotke joins us now to discuss decisions issued in the first half of this year. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Can you first just give an overview of the Federal Circuit's decisions in the first six months of 2023? Absolutely, and thanks for having me. In the first half of 2023, and I want to be clear, we're recording this podcast on June 22nd, 2023, so it's not quite the halfway point, but I think we can see some of the trends on what the Federal Circuit has done really more or less over the first half of the year. So we've seen 227 written opinions as of June 22nd, and the breakdown between precedential and non-precedential is that there are 87 precedential decisions issued, and 140 non-precedential decisions. So almost a two-to-one ratio, a little bit less than that of non-precedential to precedential. Since Finnegan is an IP firm, we, you know, we want to talk about some of the IP cases and how many of those decisions came from the more common IP forums, such as District Court, the USPTO, and the ITC. And what we've seen is 48 of those written opinions came from District Court, Uh, 56 came from the USPTO, and five came from the ITC. And there are some other IP decisions that can come up from other courts, such as the Court of Federal Claims, but I think that cross-section of district court, USPTO, and ITC is, is a good representative set of those opinions. Let's also look at the Rule 36 decisions, because those issue without a written decision. They affirm the judgment below, but there's a shorter issuance from the Federal Circuit that just says affirmed under Rule 36. And there have been 65 of those, seven from the district court, 43 from the USPTO, and none from the ITC. So about six times more USPTO Rule 36s than district court Rule 36s. And then the number of orders that the Federal Circuit has issued, it's been 238 orders up to June 22nd, 2023. Uh, 26 of those dealt with writs of mandamus, which typically come from the district court um, up to the federal circuit for various reasons, such as motions to transfer uh, being denied. And we've seen 26 of those. So almost four a month, a little bit more than that. Okay. Well, let's dig into some of the uh, hot IP decisions. What stood out to you in the first half of the year? Yeah. So I want to talk about three decisions in particular. Um, Two relate to inter partes reviews at the USPTO. And there are issues that the Federal Circuit uh, hasn't really addressed as much up to this point in the history of the the PTAB. And then the third one is actually a copyright decision, which are often regional circuit decisions. But this one came up and came to the Federal Circuit. So the two USPTO decisions are Apple v. Vidal, which is an Administrative Procedures Act decision uh, regarding whether or not a party can challenge how the USPTO director issues her guidance for discretionary denials. And the second one is Ironberg versus Valve Corp, which addresses the scope of estoppel after a final written decision issues in a IPR proceeding or a PGR proceeding. And then the copyright decision is SAS Institute v. World Programming, which is about the copyrightability of software. Great. Well, let's take them in that order. Let's first uh, address Apple v. Vidal decision. What was that about? So Apple v. Vidal came out in March of 2023, and it comes from a district court case where Apple and other companies filed suit against the director of the USPTO, 
alleging that the director's use of precedential decisions at the board, in particular, the NHK Spring and the Fintive decision were, quote, arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedures Act and weren't a proper mechanism for the director to issue guidance to the board for when it should exercise discretionary denials, for example, when there's a a co-pending district court proceeding. And I'll just refer to Apple because they're the first name party on the case. So it's about the American Invents Act. And one of those statutes of the American Invents Act gives the director discretion whether to institute IPR proceedings. Several years ago, uh, the board issued the two presidential decisions that I mentioned, NHK Spring and Fintive, which set forth various factors that the board can consider when deciding whether to institute an IPR proceeding, when there's a co-pending district court proceeding, and how to look at those factors. Historically, the federal circuit has often found that parties who try to challenge institution decisions are precluded from doing so under a statute that says that institution decisions are final and non-appealable. And there have been a number of writs of mandamus that have come up from, for example, denied IPR proceedings or granted IPR proceedings. And the Federal Circuit has historically denied those under that non-reviewability statute. This particular challenge from the district court, the Federal Circuit said that Apple was not permitted to challenge the arbitrary and capriciousness of those decisions because it related directly to institution. And because of that, the Federal Circuit looked at the Supreme Court cases that are well known at this point, Quozo and Thrive, and found that Apple's challenges that the framework was arbitrary and capricious was a, quote, direct, immediate, and express subject of institution. So it was challenging institution. And the Federal Circuit said that was barred by statute precluding review of institution decisions. Apple had another challenge that they brought up to the Federal Circuit, saying that the director should have implemented this guidance through notice and comment rulemaking rather than precedential decisions. Uh, Below, the district court dismissed that and said that Apple couldn't bring that challenge. But on appeal, the court found that Apple had standing to pursue that challenge. It didn't decide the merits, but it sent it back to the district court to do that. And the Federal Circuit distinguished this particular challenge from the arbitrary and capriciousness challenges because, according to the Federal Circuit, when notice and comment rulemaking is employed, it's separate from reviewing the substance of those instructions that could have come through notice and comment rulemaking. And the court explained that whether the agency uses notice and comment rulemaking procedures is not committed to the discretion of the agency. And therefore, Apple could take this challenge to the district court for it to decide whether they should have been implemented through notice and comment. Uh, The court found that Apple had standing and remanded for further proceedings at the district court. And in making this determination of standing, the Federal Circuit observed that Apple was a, quote, repeat player at the board and had filed many IPR petitions and that at least some of Apple's petitions had been denied institution based on this framework that Apple was trying to challenge and that it was, quote, far from speculative that future petitions may also be denied on this framework, and that it's possible that had notice and comment rulemaking been implemented, if that is the appropriate mechanism, that it could also have prompted the USPTO to perhaps offer different guidance that may have favored Apple. And because of that, uh, the court sent it back, 
and remand to the district court for further proceedings. Okay, so the Apple v. Vidal decision addresses institution decisions. The second case you talked about deals with the other end of IPRs, the effects of a final written decision. Tell us more about Ironberg v. Valve Corp. Sure. So Ironberg v. Valve came out in April of 2023, so a month after the Apple v. Vidal decision. And although the Ironberg decision deals with several issues, the one I want to focus on is estoppel after a final written decision. And just as a reminder to everyone, after institution, the board will issue a final written decision on the patentability of the challenge claims based on a petition in IPR. And under the statutes, that final written decision triggers estoppel and limits the types of validity challenges that a petitioner can bring in other forums, such as a district court, if the challenge claims are found not unpatentable by the board. And the particular statute that Ironberg deals with is 35 U.S.C. Section 315E2, which states, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that a petitioner in an IPR review that results in a final written decision may not assert in either in a civil action arising in whole or in part under the Patent Acts that a claim is invalid on any ground, and this is the important part, that the petitioner raised or reasonably could have raised during the inter partes review. And Ironberg focuses on that latter part, reasonably could have raised. So by way of background, Ironberg sued Valve for patent infringement. Valve filed its IPR petition. Uh, The board instituted some of Valve's petition grounds, but not all of them. So Valve had a couple of grounds in the petition. The board selected a few and said, we're going to proceed on these grounds. We're not going to proceed on these other grounds. That petition was filed before the Supreme Court's SAS Institute decision, which said that the board needs to decide all of the grounds in the petition. And Valve, after SAS, did not go back and try to get the non-instituted grounds to be decided by the board. And that actually becomes fact that's relevant later. But I think it's worth noting, if we're listening to this in 2023 or later, and you're thinking about the Supreme Court's SAS decision and and questioning how there were non-instituted grounds, that's why. And so at final written decision, the USPTO canceled several of Ironberg's claims as unpatentable, but several other claims remained in the litigation. And prior to trial, Ironberg moved for an order from the district court to limit Valve's invalidity defenses based on the estoppel statute. And in particular, Ironberg sought an order that Valve could not raise the non-instituted grounds from its IPR petition in district court, and that Valve could not raise invalidity grounds that were identified in a third party's IPR petition that was filed after Valve had filed its IPR petition. And the district court granted the motion for both requests, and at trial, the jury found that Valve had infringed the claims, and Ironberg was awarded damages but there were enhanced damages denied. And so both parties appealed, Ironberg and Valve, which is why Ironberg appeals as the first party in this case on appeal. And so on appeal, the Federal Circuit affirmed the district court's decision that the non-instituted grounds could not be raised in district court. They were stopped. And the court found that these grounds were explicitly contained in the petition. They were not instituted. And that Valve could have sought to have them decided after the SAS Institute decision of the Supreme Court But, quote, Valve's choice to leave unremedied the non-instituted grounds does not shield it from the estoppel provision. And that's in the slip opinion uh, at 31. 
However, the federal circuit vacated the district court's determination related to the grounds that were identified in the later filed IPR petition by a third party. And this is where the reason I chose this decision comes into play is it addresses the standard for estoppel under 315E2 and also who has the burden of proof under 315E2. And the court noted that the federal circuit had not fully addressed the standards by which this determination is to be made as to what invalidity grounds not presented in a petition are stopped under 315E2 in the statute. So now the court has taken an opportunity to give us a little more guidance on that. And the court observed that the district court applied a, quote, skilled searcher standard to determine whether a ground could reasonably have been raised in a petition. And noted that both parties, um, Ironberg and Valve, agreed that the court should apply that standard here. So the court did so. And based on that standard, it held that, quote, provided the other conditions of the statute are satisfied, Section 315E2 stops a petitioner as to invalidity grounds that a skilled searcher conducting a diligent search reasonably could have been expected to discover. And that's what it reasonably could have been raised ground means. And that's the slip opinion at 33. Having given that guidance, the federal circuit turned to which party bears the burden of proving whether a skilled searcher could or could not or would or would not have found a particular ground applying the standard that it set forth. And in looking at the district court's decision, the federal circuit believed that the district court had put the burden on Valve to show that a skilled searcher would not have found a particular ground instead of on Ironberg to show that a skilled searcher would have found a particular ground. And so it puts the burden on the party that wants to apply the estoppel provision and show that estoppel applies rather than the party that is being estopped. And based on this burden application, the Federal Circuit vacated the decision related to the third party petition grounds and sent it back to the district court um, to make further findings uh, under this guidance from the Federal Circuit. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Now, you've covered two patent cases, but you've mentioned a copyright case, SAS Institute versus World Programming. Can you talk about that one? Yeah. So in SAS versus World Programming, it's a copyright case at the Federal Circuit. Uh, we don't see a lot of those. Those are often under regional circuits. And so I think it's worth talking about just because it's a type of case that we don't see a lot at the Federal Circuit. And what happened in this case was SAS Institute sued World Programming, alleging copyright infringement of SAS's software and user manuals. And relevant to this appeal, the district court determined that SAS had failed to establish copyrightability for its copyright infringement claims. And this was a split decision, two to one, on the Federal Circuit panel. There's a dissent that we'll talk about. And the Federal Circuit affirmed the district court's determination that SAS had failed to establish its copyrightability to assert infringement. The majority observed that copyrightability has different meanings, but applied a definition of, quote, whether the specific elements of a copyrighted work that are asserted in a copyright infringement action fall within the scope of protection extended to the particular work under copyright law. That's the slip opinion at six. As an initial matter, the majority decision spent a good amount of time going through the copyright statutes before turning to the copyright protection 
for SAS's assertions. And the court explained that the appeal involved what are called, quote, non-literal elements. And those are those that are not reduced to written code for the software. And that the scope of protection when you're dealing with non-literal elements can vary as one moves away from literal elements more towards ideas. That's in the slip opinion at eight. And the court observed that some regional circuits have applied a particular test for these types of copyrightability decisions called the abstraction, filtration, and comparison test. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that. It's laid out in, in specificity in the opinion. But basically what this test does is it is a three-step test to determine the scope of protection for computer programs, including non-literal elements. And applying this test, the majority panel found that it didn't need to reach the third test on comparison because it could focus on the abstraction and filtration parts of the test and determine that SAS had not shown that it met the copyrightability standard. The court found that as an initial matter, SAS had obtained a copyright registration that created a rebuttable presumption of copyrightability and validity. But because world programming was then able to meet its burden to establish that certain elements of the software were not protected by copyright, that the burden then shifted back to SAS such that SAS had to show that certain elements were copyrightable in order to continue its claims. That's the same standard that the district court applied. The federal circuit looked at it too. And so it was a burden shifting framework. And the court ended up affirming the district court's decision that SAS had not shown that it met the standard for copyrightability for its software because of the non-literal elements, among other things. There was a dissent here, as I mentioned. That dissent was written by Judge Newman. And like the majority, Judge Newman began by reviewing the Copyright Act statutes, but she said she would have come to a different conclusion. She would have concluded that the district court did not apply the correct law because the existence of possible infringement defenses doesn't negate the copyrightability of software. And she diverged from the the majority in her analysis, and she stated that the inclusion of non-literal elements doesn't negate copyrightability of a work, and she would have found that the district court erred by applying the law, and what she would have found that the SAS program was copyrightable. Judge Newman said that she also, in her dissent, would have faulted the district court for placing the burden on SAS to show protection was warranted instead of world programming to negate the copyrightability. And she stated that, quote, the right of others to use non-literal elements in other contexts and other combinations does not negate the copyrightability of the programs that use those non-literal elements. And that's in her dissent at, at page 14. And based on these disagreements, she dissented. So we do have a split decision here, but the Federal Circuit did end up affirming that SAS's software was not copyrightable and it hadn't met the copyrightability standards. So it it affirmed. Well, thank you, Kevin, for highlighting those three cases. Any final thoughts about the overall picture you saw from the Federal Circuit in the first half of this year? So I think the first half of 2023 shows us that the Federal Circuit's still a, a busy court. It's deciding a number of IP cases. But as some of these decisions show, Even 10 years after the AIA was implemented, we're still getting new guidance, 
new decisions from the federal circuit on issues that have taken quite literally a decade to come up to the court. And there's still undecided law out there. So I think we're going to continue to see some interesting decisions from the court in years to come that address issues that people have maybe been thinking about in the background, but we're still waiting to come up to the court. And it's going to be an exciting time as, as we get those kinds of decisions. Well, absolutely. We look forward to hearing about and talking about it with you in the future. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan partner Kevin Rodkey. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.